So I'm sorry not to be with you today, but I do want to thank the Montana Historical Society for making this presentation available. So my aim in a very broad sense is to explore some of the aspects of conservation and preservation through art in the parks. Of course, that begs the question, what is art? Generally, art is defined as the expression or application of human creative skill and imagination, typically but not necessarily in a visual form such as painting or sculpture. Uh, and producing works to be appreciated primarily for their beauty and emotional power. Landscape art, of course, is the first thing to come to mind. So Montana is not unique in its long traditions of landscape art. Those who came before us left compelling incentives to visit Montana. For example, Pictograph Cave National Historic Landmark uh, includes a sequence of rare pictographs that certainly represent high emotion. And they illustrate changes that impacted the landscape um, and left its people forever changed, such as guns and horses and war that you see here. On the rim rock above Billings, mortuary art in the form of a crying face tells of epidemics and the devastation that they caused Native people. Graffiti on Pompey's Pillar, National Historic Monument, documents the passing of Lewis and Clark in 1806, and a signature in eastern Montana, likely made by a Chinese railroad worker, documents the laying of the tracks of the Milwaukee Road near Roundup in 1907. These small expressions seem insignificant, but they and other tidbits are truly the essence of Montana. The history of Montana's two national parks, Yellowstone and Glacier, is somewhat out of my personal comfort zone, but I offer you some thoughts and maybe a few different avenues that you as historians and teachers could pursue or encourage your students maybe to think about when you consider the role of art in the park uh, and its preservation. Although once at odds, tenants of conservation and preservation, at least as far as I understand them, today go hand in hand. Conservation is not strictly physical, but extends to the preservation of the stories and the oral traditions that help us understand the land and its importance to the past, to the present, and to the future. I hardly need to make the argument that emotional expression includes literature, music, and oral tradition. So let's look first at Yellowstone Park, the art that laid the groundwork for its creation, and a few of the human episodes that make its history especially compelling. In addition to native legends and stories, oral tradition among the first whites played an important role in the initial lure of the Yellowstone area. There were fantastic tales told by mountain men, traders, and trappers, and the first non-native story to come out of the Yellowstone area was that of John Coulter, who was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition, who returned after the expedition to trap beaver and tra traverse the Yellowstone area in 1807. He is the first known white person to enter what later became Yellowstone National Park. Blackfeet captured Coulter in this very familiar story in the Three Forks area in 1808. They killed his companion outright, and Coulter, stripped naked, escaped on foot, traveling some 210 miles in the winter to a fort on the Little Bighorn. Few believed his fantastic stories. 
um, of geysers, bubbling mud pots, and steaming pools. But his story was very well known, and he actually became a folk hero for his professed bravery and miraculous survival. Well, some discount his uh, experiences, but in 1933, a farmer outside of Tetonia, Idaho, on the northwestern border of Wyoming, dug a piece of rhyolite crudely carved in the shape of a human skull. It had the words John Coulter scratched on one side and 1808 scratched on the other. The location suggests that Coulter did travel via the Teton Pass into Yellowstone, and many believe it's a hoax, but the farmer who discovered the stone had never heard of Coulter, and that adds to the story's credibility. It would be a fun topic uh, to further research. As a Blackfeet friend maintains, the Blackfeet were very fast runners and mounted on horses by this time and surely could have caught Coulter if they had really tried. And as Blackfeet troubadour Jack Gladstone uh, reminds us in his ballad on Coulter, uh, their scheme to advertise the ferocity and dominance of the Blackfeet backfired and Coulter actually became a hero. As Gladstone concludes, to tell the honest truth, we never should have let him loose. Coulter's tales and those of other mountain men, including famous guide Jim Bridger, were mostly considered tall tales. But in 1869, three men were determined to explore the area and see for themselves. This was an extremely dangerous undertaking into mostly uncharted territory. Among other things, they measured the height of Yellowstone Falls with a rope tied to a rock. They fished in Yellowstone Lake and described the geyser basin. Afraid of disbelief, friends finally persuaded Folsom and Cook to write an article describing their experiences. It was rejected by the Chicago Tribune and Scribner's Magazine as too fanciful, fanciful to be believed. An obscure uh, Chicago periodical, the Western Monthly Magazine of July 1870, published a highly edited version of their account of the Yellowstone area. This was the first published description and set the stage for the next explorers. Survival of this important manuscript is a great story. One copy burned uh, with all of the Western Monthly's files in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. A second copy given to the fledgling Montana Historical Society burned in the fire of 1874. And finally, family discovered a third copy which they donated to the archives at MSU in 2013. And that is the only surviving copy. In addition to the descriptive magazine article, the other contributions of the Cook-Folsom-Peterson exploration include a greatly improved map, the suggestion for reservation of the area in the public interest, and the encouragement of the Washburn party of explorers that came next. The 1870 Washburn Doan expedition, partly financed by the Northern Pacific Railroad, included some of Montana Territory's most illustrious citizens among them were civil engineer and banker Samuel Hauser, who later became a territorial governor, Cornelius Hedges, an attorney, Nathaniel Langford, historian and author, Montana surveyor General Henry Washburn, who actually named Old Faithful and died several months later of pulmonary disease, and finally Truman Everts, who was a former assessor of internal revenue. 
Nathaniel Langford had a personal connect had a personal connection to the Northern Pacific Railroad and its financier Jay Cook. The Northern Pacific route across Montana was as yet unsurveyed and Cook was interested in the potential of the Yellowstone region to attract railroad business. The party left from Helena and included 19 men, 40 horses, and a dog named Booby, who belonged to Newt, one of the two African-American cooks. Langford's publication in Scribner's Magazine included the first fantastic and wonderful illustrations of the Yellowstone area, proving to the public that the stories about its wonders were really true. Langford's two-part article tells anecdotes of the men's adventures along with those of the faithful pack horse, horses who were continuously getting stuck in webs of fallen trees and crevices. One of the sturdy pack horses performed a remarkable feat headed down a steep mountainside, accomplishing three head springs head over tail and emerged none the worse for wear. He was dubbed Little Invulnerable. These stories make uh, Langford's literary material and illustrations really great reading and this is entirely online and wonderful material for research. Uh, Truman C. Everts became separated from the group and was lost in the Yellowstone for 37 harrowing days. His experiences and miraculous rescue appeared in newspapers across the United States and his personal illustrated narrative in Scribner's brought further national interest to Yellowstone. It would be a great project for a student to report on this thrilling narrative, which can also be found online. The factual and literary reports of these prominent individuals helped establish the movement to create Yellowstone Park. The, um, we have these wonderful words of Nathaniel Langford uh, talking about the exploration and the illimitable resources and the grandness of the area. Jay Cook financed Langford's speaking tour about the expedition in January, and in January of 1871, one of those speeches in Washington, D.C. inspired geologist Ferdinand Vandeveer Hayden. He persuaded Congress to fund a geological survey on the Yellowstone region. It was the first federally funded geological survey. Hayden was a trained medical doctor who served as a surgeon during the, middle, uh, during the Civil War, but he was actually more interested in geology, and after the war, he became a geology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Hayden's previous expeditions had already added significantly to the geological knowledge of the Western frontier. This was again a venture into almost unknown rugged uh, territory. The team included botanists, zoologists, and a photographer, W.H. Jackson, who documented the journey. Included in the party was a young artist, Thomas Moran, who worked for Scribner's and had actually helped with the illustrations in Langford's article. And he became so interested in the Yellowstone that he volunteered for the expedition at his own expense. Both Scribner's and a $500 loan from Jay Cook helped finance his journey. He was uh, rather, rather, of rather delicate constitution and had never even ridden a horse. He was so thin and bony that he had to use a pillow on his McClellan saddle. He was also very health conscious and had never eaten fatty or fried foods, but he quickly adapted to the harsh diet of camping out. He wrote home, 
You should see me bolt the bacon. Moran produced more than 30 sketches and watercolors of Yellowstone's cliffs, geysers, and rivers. These, combined with Jackson's photographs, um, offered Americans their very first real glimpse into the area's natural beauty. But Jackson was not the only photographer on the Hayden expedition. Joshua Chrisman of Bozeman, Yellowstone's forgotten photographer, served as Jackson's assistant and took photographs on the expedition. Chrisman printed his own work in his Bozeman studio and, was never, and it was never nationally marketed. Jackson even claimed some of Chrisman's work as his own. Chrisman sold his work to other photographers and publishers and consequently his Yellowstone stereo views were frequently published and attributed to others. When Moran's paintings were later exhibited in Congress, they helped win many po politicians over to the idea of making Yellowstone a national playground. When the bill to create Yellowstone Park went before Congress in 1872, Congress had already uh, had before it Joint Memorial Number no. 5, which was adopted by the Montana Legislative Council just a few months previous in 1871 on the motion of Councilman Seth Bullock, who was later famous of, as the Sheriff of Deadwood. Well, Bullock was a Republican, and many Montana Democrats opposed the idea, fearing that the creation of a wilderness park would deter visitors and jeopardize Montana's future economic potential. Nonetheless, Congress created Yellowstone as the first national park in 1872. Cartography is another art form that played a role in the exploration and conservation of Yellowstone. William, William Clark compiled this map in uh, 1806, and the famous um, 1872 map of Montana Territory, drawn by Walter DeLacy, shows the 1869 route of the Cook-Folsom expedition and provides far more detail about Yellowstone features than had ever been revealed before. Subsequently, Langford and Hayden made, and others also made contributions. The evolution of maps and changes as knowledge became more refined would also make a great research project. Rustic Park architecture, especially the historic Old Faithful Inn at Yellowstone, built in 1904, was and is an important part of the park's lure. With tourism, however, comes problems, and not all publicity is good for conservation. Uh, as Henry Windsor, who wrote a uh, park manual for tourists in 1883, um, this is a pretty good example of a bad suggestion. He writes, and I quote, Old Faithful is sometimes degraded by being made into a laundry. Garments placed in the crater during quiescence are ejected, thoroughly washed when the eruption takes place. General Sheridan's men in 1882 found that linen and cotton fabrics were uninjured by the action of the water, but woolen clothes were torn to shreds. And here you see tourists getting pretty darn close to uh, the actual eruption of Old Faithful. Cooking on the hook uh, is another rather bad idea that was uh, made illegal in 1911. Perceptions, conservation methods, and necessities change over time as we all know. Today, we would certainly not be feeding candy to the bears. After the creation of Yellowstone Park in 1872, 
two men who played key roles in the later creation of Glacier National Park were beginning their important work. Conservationist George Bird Grinnell, one of the nation's first wilderness defenders and founder of the forerunner of today's National Audubon Society, and James Willard Schultz, a prolific writer, guide, and hunter who lived with the Blackfeet and was eventually adopted into the Blackfeet Nation, are very important names. Grinnell was a nature editor and later editor-in-chief of Forest and Stream, a newspaper uh, magazine that was well-read by sportsmen and nature enthusiasts and an important literary mouthpiece for conservation. And just as an aside, uh, in 1930, Forest and Stream merged with its contemporary competitor, Field and Stream, to become the current Field and Stream magazine that we all know today. In 1884, Grinnell was the official zoologist and, uh, with the controversial Custer expedition into the Black Hills. He was totally unimpressed with Custer and saw firsthand the diminishing wildlife populations. Grinnell visited newly created Yellowstone Park with a government survey the next year in 1875. Schultz and Grinnell then met in 1885 when Grinnell published an article by Schultz on the Blackfeet in Forest and Stream. Schultz eventually wrote 37 books and many widely published articles, mostly about his life with the Blackfeet and their stories. That same year, in 1885, Grinnell made his first trip to the Glacier area, traveling with Schultz through what would later become Glacier National Park. This cemented a friendship between the two significant players in the park's future. During many subsequent trips to the area, Grinnell, like Schultz, lived with native people and became an important advocate, advocate and a, a prolific writer. Grinnell is usually credited with the idea of creating Glacier National Park. However, in 1883, two years before Grinnell's first visit to the area, Lieutenant J.T. Van Orsdale, stationed at Fort Browning, had become acquainted with the Glacier area through military explorations. Van Orsdale wrote a letter to the editor of the Helena Weekly Herald, uh, suggesting that the ice fields should be set aside as a national park. This was the first suggestion but it was George Bird Grinnell who visited two years later and then spent 20 years trying to convince Congress to establish the park. Grinnell was maybe not the first to suggest the idea of Glacier National Park, but he was the first to present the idea to the wider public through an article he wrote in 1901 that was published in Century Magazine, which from 1881 to 1930 was the leading English language periodical. In this article, Crown of the Continent, uh, it was this article that inspired the title used today for the area that includes Waterton Lakes National Park in Canada and Glacier in the United States. Grinnell worked to, to dispel the fallacy of inexhaustible resources. Poaching was a big problem at Yellowstone and led to the passage of the Lacey Act or the Yellowstone Park Protection Act in 1894. This legislation is considered the cornerstone of national park laws and policies. It was the first federal law protecting birds and wildlife and allowing punishment for crimes in the park. Notorious poacher Ed Howell was the first person charged under the new law for killing bison in the park. And there you can see some of his 
uh, illegal work. In 1895, the Blackfeet, under government pressure, ceded a strip of land that would become the eastern half of Glacier National Park. While the designation of the Forest Reserve confirmed the traditional usage rights of the Blackfeet, the enabling legislation of the National Park does not mention the guarantees to Native American tribes. It is the position of the United States government that with the special designation as a national park, the mountains ceded their multi-purpose public land status and the former rights ceased to exist. The Court of Claims confirmed this in 1935 and it is sometimes very contentious. The success at Yellowstone and conservation me measures elsewhere laid the groundwork for the creation of Glacier National Park in 1910. Glacier came about especially due to the collaboration of Grinnell and Lewis Hill of the Great Northern Railroad. Grinnell's articles about the places he explored were key to the successful designation. Between Yellowstone and Glacier, some nine other national parks were designated and in that time, promotion of the parks became more refined, and with Glacier, the Great Northern Railroad launched its See America First campaign. Hill's elaborate plans to make Glacier America's Alps brought park architecture to the forefront, and artists like John Ferry, under Great Northern contract, capitalized on the park's awesome beauty. The clash between the conservation of resources and the preservation of scenery historically comes to the forefront in the creation of Glacier National Park. Also interest, and in, this is also a, a really interesting avenue to pursue. Without the visual art of painters like Thomas Moran and John Ferry, photographers like William H. Jackson and uh, F.J. Haynes, and art promoters like Jay Cook and Lewis Hill, we might not have national parks. But without literature, we would surely not have these special places. And just as important, without native traditions, their histories would certainly not be as rich. What is now Glacier National Park was an important resource and spiritual area for the Ponderay, Flathead, Kootenai, and Blackhead, uh, Blackfeet tribes. They knew it as, and know it today, as the crest of the world or the Earth's backbone. But the preservation of the park impacted the lifeways and the heritage of those whose ancestors vision quested hunted and traveled along the Earth's backbone. The Kootenai expressed this eloquently, and I quote, we are thankful for the preservation of an area that has 500-year-old cedar trees who listen to our ancestors sing and dance long before the Kootenai were aware of Europeans. Yet we are also aware that this place has not been preserved because of its significance to us. It is preserved because of the many visitors that came to the area. This is a continuing controversy and an important thread in the history of the park. And finally, I leave you with this thought. There are many ways to tap the Earth's backbone, physical and spiritual. Some ways are beneficial and some not so beneficial. In discussing conservation through art, one important avenue is through storytelling. James Willard Schultz was one prolific author who helped preserve the stories tied to the land. Contemporary Blackfeet artist Jack Gladstone is another who is a modern master at tapping the historical and spiritual aspects of the Earth's backbone through his musical storytelling. 
and at least with contemporary artists like Jack, whose music and exquisite lyrics are readily available to the public at large on the internet, the history, the memories, and the legends of Glacier, Yellowstone, and other important Montana places will survive. <laughs>